I had excused myself from that particular crisis saying, well, I'm, I'm in finance. I don't know anything about health. I'm not a counselor. There's, there's nothing that I can do uh, in, in this particular situation. And yet having spent an afternoon with these young children and I no longer had an excuse to say that this was for doctors or medical people, I, I knew that I could get involved and, and, and do something in the situation. Welcome, everybody, to Inspired with Simon Gilbo. It's great to be back for another, I anticipate, fantastic week of, of hearing inspiring good news, challenging overcoming of faith uh, in the nitty-gritty of life. We've got Anthony Farr with us today. Welcome, Anthony. Welcome, Simon. Great to be with you. And uh, Anthony is in Rwanda right now. We're hoping uh, that the sound quality will hold out for us. Um, so, guys, I want you to picture me. This is, I think, probably, I'm guessing, about 1997. I'm on the back of a donkey, sort of uh, waddling along in the Egyptian desert. And uh, I'm in a group with a few other tourists. And there's this guy there, and he's a great big meathead. And uh, he's his, I think, donkey is struggling under his weight. No, that's maybe over, over egging it up. Um, but there's something familiar about his eyes. And after a while chatting, I said to, I said to him, did you do all your schooling in South Africa? And he said, yes, apart from three years at a prep school in Buckinghamshire. And it turns out he's my tennis partner when we were 12 years old. And that is Anthony Farr. So it was a rekindle. I mean, we weren't really mates at school, were we, Anthony? But because uh, you were the year above me. Can I, can I brag and say that uh, <laughs> I took your crown uh, as the tennis champion of Coldicott? Exactly. We were too competitive to be friends. Simon. <laughs> I think that's not bitter, any bitterness sort of being dredged out there. But uh, it was it was amazing, wasn't it? And uh, that God was definitely in that because you then changed your holiday plans. You joined us at church in Cairo. And as a part of your spiritual journey, you ended up back at your, in merchant banking in, in a city in London. And you did an HTB Alpha course. And, and then, I mean, I just saw your trajectory. Just It was stunning. You left merchant banking to go back to South Africa to be part of the transformation of your nation. And it's been beautiful to watch from a distance. You were one of my best men and uh, at my wedding. And uh, so precious, precious friend, even though you're absolutely rubbish at keeping in touch. So this, this chat is probably the longest we'll have had in about five years. So I'm really excited to share you and our friendship with, with a bigger audience. Um, so that's a bit of context. Uh, you are the CEO of Alan and Jill Gray Philanthropies in Africa. Uh, most people won't be familiar with Alan and Jill Gray and, and, unless they're South African, but he is like the Warren Buffett of uh, South Africa. So a really minted bloke who's done very well and wants to plow back in a lot of his profits into good work. And so you represent him in Africa, and uh, but you've got lots more to tell in terms of your journey. So listen, I mean, how would you share your testimony? Go for it. Yeah, thanks, Simon. I, I suppose I, I grew up in a, a nominally uh, religious family, uh, but more religion than, than actually relationship. Mm -hmm. And I, but I, I was always seeking. Uh, there just need, needed to be an answer to how uh, the world make, made sense. I, I couldn't believe that, that we just were, were on this earth for a few years and, and then died and that was the end of it. That, that just, I couldn't accept that. And so mm -hmm. we're searching uh, from a very young age. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, in that search, I, I really uh, came into some confused uh, uh, guidance and, and mentorship and, and really actually became quite depressed because I, I wasn't led uh, to Christ in that search, but but was really led to darker places and, and really actually ended up being hospitalized um, for for depression um, right. in, in my teenage years as a result of the search. And so 
at the end of that, coming out of that, I, I still had this deep sense that there must be a God. Uh, otherwise, yeah, it just, it just, I couldn't accept the meaningless of, of life without a God. But I, I didn't understand who that God was and what that God, uh, yeah, how that God operated. And so I decided just to to leave uh, things of, of of a spiritual nature aside, just for my own health for a period. But but mm-hmm. realizing that that my seeking would. Uh, would continue and and so and then over the years uh, God was very gracious uh, I suddenly found my my best friends uh, at university were all strong Christians um, and and so there was this continuing uh, you know God was just on the on the outskirts of of my life and I kind, I kind of came to accept that there you know, that, and believe in in that there must be a God but I I really struggled with the notion of Christ I just didn't it didn't make sense to me that that God himself could have come to to our planet, uh, and so there were many other moments, uh, including that that moment in Egypt and spending time um, with your team at, at church in in Cairo. Uh, but but ultimately, I, I carried on, finished university, uh, finished my uh, articles as a chartered accountant, and and then found myself in London uh, as a, as a merchant banker. Uh, but literally, it was almost as if God had ordained for some reason that uh, that the United Kingdom would be part of my uh, salvation and uh, and so the very first weekend I arrived in in the UK, I was with some friends who were saying that they were about to go that that Sunday to to Holy Trinity Brompton, and mm-hmm. and I, I I just felt excited to to join them and and went and uh, went to the service and. Mickey Gumbel was preaching, and as part of the service, they announced an upcoming Alpha course. And uh, uh, I found next thing I was on this Alpha course, and and really it was amazing. It was just all those last re- reservations, all all those last misunderstandings were were dismantled mm-hmm. through through that Alpha course. And and finally on the uh, the weekend away. Um, the weekend of the Holy Spirit. I just had a, a definitive encounter um, with Christ, and and really have uh, uh, been excited to to serve Him uh, with all of my heart ever since. And uh, that that would be an overview of my testimony. So, I mean, you're already a nice bloke, weren't you? You're a decent chap. So, what was the transformation of once you actually met Christ? Yeah, I suppose the biggest. Uh, I mean, obviously, at, at many levels, uh, God was <laughs> operating. Um, but I suppose one of the the, the theologies that, uh, that 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 really struck me is this notion of uh, if if we are believers in Christ, that that He has uh, a calling for us, that He has a special plan and purpose for each one mm-hmm. of our lives. And and so I, I I suppose part of it was coming to to faith so relatively late. I. I really uh, kind of was convinced that you know if this was true, this was this was true, and it had to to affect everything. It couldn't just be something on the side. It had to be something that was central to to who we were, and and it it, it just would change everything. And so, and part of that was this understanding of well, what is it then that God has us on this earth, and, and what is the task and assignment that He set up for us? And so, so that led me on a journey to to really try and kind of understand that, and and ultimately uh, led me away from merchant banking to uh, to philanthropy and being involved in, in in those sorts of projects yeah you know you talk about uh, calling and I, I remember I mean that you were turbocharged at, at that time about this course that um, uh, Roland Luke had developed called the adventure of calling and you sort of became a real sort of dynamo in the UK trying to get people on it talk a bit about that 
Yeah, so it's part of this journey of, of really wanting to understand calling and purpose and, and really uh, kind of finding exactly what it was that, that God wanted. Uh, I, I was actually back from the UK on secondment in, in Johannesburg and uh, was at a church there, Rosebank Union, uh, and, and there was a, uh, a gentleman in that church, Roland Luke, who, who had uh, developed a course called the Adventure of Living, which answered exactly this question: You know, what what is our calling from from God? How does it work? Why does it seem that so many Christians don't couldn't answer honestly that they do believe that they are pursuing their calling, that they know what their calling is mm-hmm. uh, at at that time? And uh, and so I, I I met with him, and and I wasn't in Johannesburg for very long, and so there wasn't a course coming up. So I said, well, how, how do I how do I get this stuff in my in my system? And uh, and so he kindly gave me. Some some tapes and and videos to watch and uh, and and I really kind of did a private session of this course, but it just really it, it really answered the questions that had been burning so so deep in my heart and uh, and and I suppose I was so excited about this that it you know, it was almost like salvation you can't just keep it inside yeah. you just have to to share it everyone needs to to know this uh, and and so I, I said well you know isn't isn't there any way that we can uh, take this to to the United Kingdom and so I said well. Uh, we're not quite ready for that, but but there's no reason why we can't. And so it, it, it really got him to to put all of those uh, recordings in place so that we could take it to to England. And and so uh, you know, with you know, more um, kind of inexperience and, and naivety, just sort of went ahead and, and tried to to get it going um, in England. And, and we started running a few courses through video. And and really to the, to this day, they, I could I could name a number of people whose whose lives have been significantly impacted by by those courses all those years ago in England. Yeah, I I remember it. And I when I was down preaching actually through you at Rosebank Union, and and then uh, Helen uh, Rona's wife interviewed me for the course, and it was it was I mean I, I suppose I was in the absolute sweet spot in the most dangerous country in the world in a war zone, living out my calling, and I was just turbocharged and so excited, and I completely resonated with that that idea of calling, you know, the sweet spot of, of uh, the overlap of the Venn diagram, if you like, that's, I don't know if that's from the course, but, or whether that's me, I, I don't know, but there you know, three overlapping circles, you know, we studied Venn diagrams, didn't we, at school, and we thought, what a chaffing waste of time this is, but this is the only purpose I found in life for a Venn diagram, is the overlap of three circles, you know, the ideal is that uh, there's an overlap of passion, gifting, and opportunity. And you know, you might be passionate about being a worship leader, but have a terrible voice. You're not going to you're not going to end up as a worship leader, but because there's not an overlap of passion and gifting. But you know, what we're good at, what we're passionate about, and where the opportunity is, that is the ideal for what we what we find. And I know I found that in in the call of God in my life in Brenda. You found it uh, in successive chapters of your life, and I love how the Lord used you through that course, The Adventure of Living. And so I'm guessing in terms of chronology, this is, this is an, o- an overlap, isn't it? And, and that's when you found, or God found you, your new chapter to leave, quite a radical step, I guess, being a, a, a merchant banker and then leaving that to, to start working in a completely different field, working with orphans. So, so what, what happened there? Yeah, it it was uh, uh, fairly dramatic, um, but but really God had had, had been very clear in, in showing the way. So the, the starting point of it was at that same time where, when I was in um, Johannesburg, because as you can imagine, I was getting more and more excited about this course, but uh, but you know, kind of hadn't really answered the questions for for myself yet. So. It's, it was really a kind of a sense of urgency and, and really mm-hmm. pressing into God to understand what, what, what exactly the calling was. And so the, the defining moment for me actually was while 
I was in Johannesburg, I had the opportunity to to go and visit uh, a local orphanage. In fact, it was an orphanage run by the Salvation Army. And, and really, it was very simple. I was just going there for the afternoon to spend some time with these young children. But that one afternoon, that very simple afternoon, changed everything for me. Because mm. by the end of the afternoon, I, I understood two things. Uh, firstly, I I had felt, particularly around this HIV AIDS pandemic, which you must imagine, remember in South Africa in those days, was, was going to make two million children yeah. orphaned. It was, you know, it was the biggest crisis facing that, that, that country at that time. And But I had excused myself from that particular crisis saying, well, I'm, I'm in finance. I don't know anything about health. I'm, I'm not a counselor. There's, there's nothing that I can do uh, in, in this particular situation. And yet having spent an afternoon with these young children and, and spending or just really giving them my attention and by the end of that afternoon, I could see the difference in their faces. They, yeah. they had so little that just the attention that I was giving them, I could see the change in their face. And so I no longer had an excuse to say that this was for doctors or medical people. I, I knew that, um, that I, could, I could get involved and, and, and do something in the situation. But, but perhaps more importantly, you know, I, I had fed myself the, the understanding that, that you know, finance was a really powerful way of, of effecting change, and, and, and mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. Um, uh, but but yet, you know, suddenly now there was this situation where where a, a single country was going to have two million children that wouldn't know what it meant to have a mother or father put them into bed at night to understand parenting as it's designed. And and I just thought that we were fooling ourselves to think that South Africa could be a great nation if we didn't address that problem first. So so suddenly it was a, a strategic issue, not just a, a personal revelation that I undercovered. So you had to do something and and how did you do it (laughs) well uh so i i then ended up back in in the uk uh and and you know couldn't get this this uh this afternoon out of my system i just there was something that just had to be responded to um but but really was was clueless as to to what to do uh and so so gradually we we kind of got some people together and we were very encouraged by by this parable of the starfish where it talks about a, a an old man that's walking along the beach and he sees a a lady in the distance and it looks like she's dancing but as he gets closer he sees that she's not dancing but she's picking up and throwing these starfish into the sea and he looks at her and he's a little bit confused and he, and he says, well, uh, what are you doing? And so she says, well, well can't you see? I'm, I'm throwing starfish into the sea. And he says, no, I can, I can see that you're doing that. But look, these starfish, they, they stretch for, for, for hundreds of meters along the beach. You're never going to make a difference. And she stopped and she listened to him. And then she went down and she picked up another starfish and she threw it into the sea and, and said it made a difference to that one. And so that, mm. that parable was incredibly uh, motivating because suddenly we didn't need to be paralyzed by the, yeah. by the huge numbers of children that were going to be affected by this pandemic. But actually, if it, it needed to be brought back to the power of the one and each one of us can affect that one person and that one person can, can have uh, ripple effects of its own. So it was really exciting and empowering. And, and really, that was the essence of Starfish is uh, allowing individuals that might feel that they were disconnected from this challenge to, to really kind of get involved and, and the, the starfish parable was a, a powerful paradigm to, to enable that. And so that's actually why we became known as the Starfish Foundation. And off we went in, in the UK, mobilizing a lot of those uh, South Africans that had found a home um, in, in that country at that time. And, and really, it, uh, you know, it, was, it 
it was amazing how how much traction it got quite quite quickly. Um, we used to meet at uh, the Starbucks at Parsons Green on a Monday morning mm-hmm. before work because it was really a collection of lawyers and bankers and accountants and consultants. So uh, we we would plot our, our big plans uh, in the morning that on a Monday, and and so these events and different things uh, started to roll out, and so it, it was wonderful to to kind of see that take 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 flight and. It's very clearly, uh, strategically, was pitched, uh, you know, on a secular level, wasn't it? It wasn't a Christian venture, and you, but and yet you had the extraordinary favour of God on it from the get-go, didn't you? Yes, um, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think we did feel that we wanted this to to reach um, far and wide, and so so we did make it secular. And we involve people um, without Christian beliefs from from the beginning of Starfish. But it was just amazing how God's hand was it on on at every stage. Uh, like at the beginning, we had these great ideas, we had people, but we, everything was was going wrong. We we hoped to launch at the at the South African High Commission, and, and they suddenly then decided to renovate. So the <laughs> launching venue was gone. We we then decided um, that we our first event because we wanted to make it exciting and different and interest and get people sort of uh, almost sort of redefine what it meant to be involved in charity and so our first event was something called the Welsh Castles Relay where people would do a running event through Wales through all the different beautiful castles of that country but sure enough just as we were getting going that there was the foot and mouth disease and so they cancelled the event so we didn't we didn't have a venue we didn't have an event and then we were saying well okay if we were somehow managed to scrape together some funding from the, these things um, you know what, what would we actually do with this money how would we support the children and and I, the, the big uh, charity in, in, in the UK South African oriented for children at the time was the Nelson Mandela's Children Fund. And uh, and so I went to meet with them and we had a great discussion and they were very keen to, funnily enough, to, to receive our funding. Um, but at the <laughs> end of the meeting, you kind of realized that we would uh, we would be, be giving them funds and then they would maybe write us a nice letter to thank, thank us, but there would be no direct engagement yeah, with the yeah. projects, no understanding of the lives that were being changed. And that was the central mm. kind of thesis of, of this uh, Starfish story. So we couldn't use them. So so we had no no launch, no event, and, and, and no place to actually give the money if we ever raised it. And then, uh, then so that's when God intervened. And uh, I, I was away um, on a HTB prayer weekend uh, uh, it's somewhere on the South Coast. And uh, as, as they want to do that, they wanted to do a 24-hour prayer chain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was very randomly associated, allocated in terms of who would pray when. And thankfully, I got a, a 6 o'clock slot in the morning, um, <laughs> better than 2 o'clock in the morning. And uh, and I went to, to the slot, and, and this particular theme of, of the 6 o'clock uh, was really around um, – Kind of social justice and outreach and stuff. So this sounded very interesting, uh, and and then then it started talking about this organisation, Hope HIV, which was involved with um, with with children that had been orphaned by AIDS in in Africa. So now this was really starting to pique my interest. And the next thing, this this video that they were showing as part of the prayer that hour started to talk about that very same orphanage that I'd spent that afternoon. Wow. In fact, it told the story of that very same girl, Patricia. That that had changed my understanding of 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 what was possible in the pandemic. Patricia yeah. was the girl that I had spent that afternoon with, and Patricia was the focus um, of of this video at the at this weekend away. And so, yeah, it didn't 
it didn't take much to work out. Okay, God, you're making it exceptionally clear. Somehow mm-hmm. I need to make contact with Hope HIV, and I, I met with them. There was an amazing leader, Phil Wall, uh, from the Salvation Army, and and explained what we were trying to do. And and so he totally understood uh, the vision and said, absolutely, you can you can give your funds to us, but we will make sure that you are able to decide directly which projects you're supporting, and you can have a direct relationship with the project that you support. Um, and so you will you kind of have feedback, you'll understand exactly the impact that you're making, but you can do it under our umbrella. And then mm-hmm. that's led to, to Starfish getting off the ground, and our first project was this incredible project called God's Golden Acre in KwaZulu-Natal, in the very epicenter of the pandemic in South Africa. Yes, and I had the chance to go there with you. Uh, I've often told this story, and I, I would say the story has has impacted, I want to say, hundreds of thousands of lives. Because you took me down there, you brought me down twice, a couple of times to some sort of preaching tours around the country and in Cape Town, Joe Bergen. And, and then one day you said to me, look, Simon, we've got a break in our schedule. I've got this young lad, Bongani. He is 10 years old. And uh, he is dying of AIDS, but um, his dream is to see the sea before he dies. And because we had that few days off, uh, we drove down, um, and Bongani, he wasn't actually a, a fun boy to be with, was he? Because he, his system was slowly shutting down. He was in pain, so he didn't say anything. Yeah. He was pretty gloomy. But we had those few days, and his dream, yeah, it wasn't a big dream just to see the sea before he died. And, and we, as we came down, you know, six-hour drive from Jamesboro to Durban, and then uh, and then we arrived at Durban Beach. I remember his eyes lighting up, and we put on his swimming togs, and we paddling in. And this great big crashing wave came, he was bricking himself. We got back out again, um, but we gave him his dream, and we had those few days. We were at God's Golden Acre with that wonderful lady. I forget her name. Was it Heidi? Heather, 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 yeah, fantastic lady and beautiful work there. But we were driving back in the evening to Johannesburg, and it was cold in the back of the truck, and I. And, and you were in the front with uh, another friend, Pete, and I was in the back, and Bongani was next to me. And um, you, well, he came and sort of snuggled into the crook of my neck. So I was listening to this snotty-nosed, husky-lung little boy whose system was, he wasn't dying on me, but it, he, was, he was slowly dying. And, and you had flummoxed me with the question, what's God's purpose in Bongani's life? And uh, as I sort of listened to his wheezy breathing, I was like, I was so broken. But then that is the whole point of the starfish story, isn't it? Because people can say, "What you know? look around, there's so many. What's the point? Give up. What difference can you make? But no, you bend over, you pick another one up, you wang it in and say, well, it made a difference to that one, didn't it? And I love that because we are not a statistic. God knows each one of us. He loves each one of us. And I mean, you can give me a statistic now. I wonder over your engagement at starfish and it's ongoing, you know, how many starfish did you throw back? How many, how many people did it impact because God's blessing Coca-Cola came and sponsored it and all sorts. I, I mean, how many people did, did well, orphans were impacted through yep. it? Yeah, we. I mean, cumulatively, it's probably somewhere between twenty to thirty thousand over, over the years, and, yes. and to this day, it's still um, operating strongly with with twelve thousand uh, children being supported right now. Just incredible! Oh, thank you, Lord. Oh, it's just so encouraging, isn't it? And um, I suppose I would could expect, and people might expect, wow, you're you're you know you're riding this this wave, and why not just hang on and and, and stay doing that? But I guess. You are wired as a as a pioneer. Ultimately, is that how you see it? And you had to move on to do something else. Your, your time had come to change. Yeah, I I uh, 
I, so basically, what, you know, we started very much as a, as a volunteer um, initiative in Starfish, and then uh, uh, as as the momentum picked up, it became clear that that someone was going to need to uh, to take this on full time. Um, and and I, I kind of felt this uncomfortable tap on my shoulder from God, saying, "Well." Isn't it you? Uh, and in fact, I, as God was wanting to do, He arranged a, an amazing um, meeting, um, and and I had um, had this engagement with someone that was uh, the founder of um, the the Beesum Foundation, mm-hmm. um, called James. And uh, during that conversation, it was actually meant to just be advice about starfish, but uh, kind of got moved into a more personal discussion and uh, and I said to him, you know, I'm really wrestling with this decision at the moment because you know, I, you know, should I should I be going back to South Africa to really uh, be, be working on, on Starfish full time because that's that's what the organization needs. But yet I you know I'm a banker, I'm I'm not uh, I'm not, not qualified for that and and uh, and actually I said to him, you know, the, you know, the, the reason is that the it's actually the easiest thing in the world for me to want to go back. I mean that's that's my my passion. I, I want to go back to South Africa, but actually I, I'm I'm wondering if you know, we there's there's so much momentum here in in England. Um, we're raising a lot of money. Maybe maybe God wants me to to be kind of the the resource mobilizer for mm-hmm. for now. Yeah. Um, and and so um, uh, James listened to this very wisely, and uh, and then he said, well, you know, um, firstly, um, if if you're making your decisions. Uh, based on on the finances i i think god's going to lose interest because the god sure. that i know is the god of a thousand cattle on a thousand hill and he can yeah. he can sort out the funding way more easily than than you ever could so so don't uh, don't drive your decisions on that basis and then secondly he said i was i was very interested to hear you say that the easiest thing in the world would be for you to go back to south africa because that's your homeland and that's what you want to do and because he said, you know, we do a lot of work with the Beesum Foundation in, in South Africa, and we see a lot of people wanting to help. We want to see a lot of people uh, trying to help and making donations, but it's it's from a distance, and it's slightly patronizing. And if I think of someone wanting to come alongside those communities and share in their pain and be the hands and feet of Christ in those communities, you might say it's an easy thing to go back, but I can't think of anything more difficult. Mm-hmm. And it was incredible. As he said that, those words just penetrated deep yeah. into my heart. And I, I just knew like I knew like with absolutely certainty that I was ending merchant banking. I was going back to South Africa and I was going to be volunteering full-time for Starfish. It was an amazing uh, interaction that God ordained. And so back in South Africa, in fact, I, you know, one of the great things about those early days of Starfish is that we knew that we knew nothing because we, we, we had no experience in the field. So we wanted to try and fast track our understanding. And so so one way of potentially doing that was uh, when I went back to South Africa, I actually went and lived, um, as we spoke about earlier, at God's Golden Acre, at, mm-hmm. at the project in the Valley of a Thousand Hills to really try and speed up an understanding of actually what was possible in these communities and how could we best support them with the resources that we, we mobilizing. So I spent nine months living at God's Golden Acre, then back to, to Johannesburg, which is the, the center of uh, economic activity in, in the country. And, and so Starfish continued to grow. And uh, as you mentioned, we've got amazing uh, corporate support from, from companies like Coca-Cola and, and a big retailer in South Africa called Pick and Pay. Um, the, 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 uh, the setup in the UK continued to thrive. So people were raising funds there. We set up in the US. We started to, to get uh, kind of bilateral support, so we were in all of those streams, and 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 it was really developing really well. Uh, but but 
the, there was a question that kept on gnawing me, and that was really, uh, we we were really about welfare in those communities, and mm-hmm. uh, and obviously besides uh, spiritual transformation, if you if you looked at those communities and you understood that we we, we it was a, it was a vital role, we were kind of fixing the holes in in society's um, uh, safety blanket in terms of providing food and nutrition mm-hmm. and clothing and basic mm-hmm. education. It was it was key to to. Their, um, to their dignity and and their their survival, but you could imagine going back to those communities in a few years' time, and and they wouldn't have they wouldn't have been changed. They they wouldn't have been transformed. Yeah. Uh, and really, the more I sort of thought about that, it, it really felt like it needed it needed other elements. It needed uh, high, higher levels of education. It, it needed enterprise. It needed people to to be earning incomes, um, and it needed leadership. It needed people to to really take initiative and and, and make things happen. And uh, but I, I really had no idea how that might happen, whether that was going to be another branch of Starfish or what that would mean. And and it was amazing because it was kind of almost doing a a reversal of that initial change from 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 banking to um, to orphans, but now you know, as God does, He's quite was sort of leading me back um, into into a world that 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 looked at the economic side of things as well. And and so in this confusion, uh, I remarkably just out of nowhere received a phone call um, from this Mr. Alan Gray, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the founder of the largest private asset manager in in Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he had uh, heard a little bit about Starfish, and he asked to meet. And so, um, you know, it's not often um, yeah. that you get a phone call from from a billionaire. And so, very <laughs> excited to accept his invitation, and uh, you know, thought that we were going to be financially secure at Starfish for the rest of time. Um, but, but as soon as I uh, met with him, uh, it became clear that you know, he, he was very um, complimentary about what Starfish had done. But but he was really he was really agitated about. The vision that he had for for making a difference in South Africa, he was really he'd been very philanthropically minded before, but but he, he really was now wanting to take it to to a whole nother level. But but as he started speaking, you know, basically everything he was saying was about higher levels of education, it was about yeah. enterprise, it was about leadership, and and really so. You know, although I'd been very involved in Starfish, um, you know, when he said you know offered the opportunity to get involved with, with what he wanted to do. It was actually a, a surprisingly easy decision to say, yes, I'd, I'd love to be involved. And, and, and so I moved to the, the, the Gray group of, of philanthropies with uh, what was then called the Alan Gray Orbis Foundation. So you were right again in the middle of that, that the Venn diagram, opportunity, gifting, and passion. And, uh, and he was your man. And, and uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I don't think he would share our faith, would he? But, um, he has, but, but would he see God in all this? Um, not, not explicitly, no. Um, so that, that's even more you know, um, amazing that God can use um, resources wherever he finds them. Yeah. And so, in terms of time frame, how many years at Starfish, and 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 then on to Alan Jill Gray Philanthropies? How many years there? So it was probably about four years at, at Starfish, um, and and then at uh, at Alan Gray, it's now um, it's now over fifteen years. Um, I suppose things have changed. Initially, it was um, um, projects in in South Africa, and then we stretched into um, uh, some other things that we were doing, and 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 then for the last uh, year and a half, um, our, our family's been based in in Rwanda as, as part of a global Alan and Joel Gray philanthropies that, that has been set up in the last four or five years. 
Hey folks, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I'm loving the response we're getting from across the world. It's, it's just wonderful to see how encouraging and inspiring it is being and hitting the spot. Listen, if you are being blessed by it, I'd love it. Basically, this happens under the auspices of our ministry, Great Lakes Outreach, which works in the poorest and the hungriest country in the world, which is Burundi. We're having an incredible impact in the toughest of circumstances. We want to carry on supporting those local folks doing a great job. So if you wanted to, greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired you could make a donation there i'd so appreciate it also it's word of mouth isn't it so gossip this these podcasts to other people get them to subscribe give us a great review absolutely wonderful so grateful to you so that's greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired if you want to do a monthly a couple of quid a month or or a one-off donation we'd be incredibly grateful all right now let's get back to the podcast So can you articulate what you were doing in South Africa? I mean, I, I sort of imagined you, and correct me if I'm wrong, you, you, you would sort of handpick at a young age kids of potential and basically say, you know, we're going to invest in you and mentor you and grow you and equip you to be uh, transformational agents in your own nation. I mean, that'd be how I, I understand it, but maybe that's completely wrong. You, you give it give it your version. No, that that's exactly right. Um, so, so essentially the idea is that uh, where Alan came from is that you know, one of the, the issues affecting South Africa is the level of unemployment, the unacceptable levels of, of people that, that don't have meaningful uh, employment. And, and over the years, there's been a, a growing understanding that, that entrepreneurship is, uh, is a key response uh, to creating new jobs and, and creating new enterprises. And, and so you know, a lot of people have got involved in, in entrepreneurship for, for that reason. But he, he took a much longer term view and he said, well, that's all very well, but it's, it's not about just supporting existing entrepreneurs. What we've got to do is we've actually got to change the system and we've got to develop a whole cohort of, of new entrepreneurs, a, a future generation of responsible entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs that aren't driven by just their own private benefit and private gain, but are but are, are, are motivated by the possibilities of, of enterprise to, to improve society, entrepreneurship mm. for the common good, for, for broader society. And so, but, but what was amazing about the vision was that he was willing to take a, an, a, an incredibly long-term approach to, to making this happen. So as you mentioned, we, we choose uh, some people in high school. The main entry point is as people join university, it's a very competitive selection process to become what are called Alan Gray Fellows. And, and we're selecting on the basis of those individuals that we, that we have evidence of, of being extraordinarily entrepreneurial individuals and with the right responsible values to 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 take forward this vision and so it, it looks like a scholarship at, at university but then it continues creating this community of like-minded individuals understanding how they can all contribute uh, to to make a bigger and uh, and bigger difference and uh, so that that is all happening we, we set up different structures to provide captive funding um, for the entrepreneurs as they start their businesses there there's a whole system that's being created and and so now they're, they're one and a half thousand of, of those individuals in that system yeah. in South Africa. And, and as, a, as an amazing validation of, of Alan's vision, um, in the second half of last year, uh, South Africa had its first ever company, startup company, that, uh, that grew to a valuation of $1 billion, wow. um, the so-called unicorn. Mm. Um, and and South Africa had never had a unicorn in its history before, and and the the co-founder of of this unicorn was an Alan Gray fellow uh, that we had selected out of high school in two thousand and eight. Oh, um, so so twelve years later, 
um, you know, 12 years of, of pursuing consistently the vision, um, you know, we, we have the first ever unicorn in the country. And then hopefully he wants to plow back in some of those profits to his own nation as well? Absolutely. So he's involved in a number of different ways in terms of uh, different programs and projects to to give back. And I mean, I mean that's the been the, the real joy of this is that there's, you know, I think there's there's something kingdom um, uh, about yes. about this vision, and it's so uh, it's attracted a disproportionate number um, of, of of Christians, you know, uh, large numbers of of the team at that initial foundation um, were, were strong believers. Um, many of the Allen Gray fellows would would come and share their faith with me, and how this gave them an opportunity. To, to really make an impact that, that they felt that God was asking them to do. So, so that's the, those sorts of communications and discussions have, have probably been the most rewarding of, of the journey so far. Mm, wonderful. And so you've now moved to Kigali. I mean, you've got the wrong country. You should be in Burundi. I know Burundi, well, some people won't know, but Rwanda and Burundi used to be called Rwanda Rundi and, until 1962. But I'm, I'm just sorry you end up in Kigali, but not, not Burundi, because obviously that's, that's my passion. But no, Kigali, beautiful place. You're there with your fabulous wife, Susanna, who I, hopefully I'll do a podcast sometime with her. She's an extraordinary woman of faith and gifting and vision. And you're there with your family, your children. Let's hear more about those in a sec. But what took you to Kigali? Yeah, so so you know the, the philanthropy of of Mr. Gray has, has been extraordinary. Um, I mean, if I just tell you one one story, just to, to lead into why how we got to to Kigali. So so when when the initial structure was set up, um, we we had that organisation was developing its Alan Gray Fellows, and and it was funded. Uh, um, Mr. Gray sort of facilitated. That that seven percent of the after-tax profits uh, of of this Alan Gray, the largest private asset manager in Africa, would go to to support this pipeline of future responsible mm-hmm. entrepreneurs for the common good. I mean, it was an amazing. Beautiful. I mean, seven percent of of after-tax profits, and and then uh, he then sold. Twenty uh, percent of his uh, of his shareholding of of the business to create this uh, this fund um, that that would uh, that that would be a captive fund for the Allen Gray Fellows. So as soon as they they had a good enough idea, as soon as they had some traction in their business, they they could come to this fund and and Allen Gray Fellows would exclusively be funded uh, to to realise the fullness of of their dreams, uh, their entrepreneurial dreams. And and so that when E squared bought. The twenty percent, um, they actually had to pay for it, so they didn't have any. Uh, you know, it was an entity that we just set up, so they had a, a loan for for the full value of those shares, and, and over time they, they paid down that loan. But what that meant is that Alan basically had sold twenty percent and and received the funding um, for those shares. And I mean, it was a it was an extraordinary. I mean, in in South African terms, it was a huge amount of money. It was over a, our currency is the rand, and it was over a billion rand. So at hmm. the time, it was probably somewhere in the region. Of of 100, 150 million dollars, um, and 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 that's that's what he'd received for selling his shares after working in this business for, you know, setting it up for for over 30 years at the time. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, the thing that bothered him was that he was making these long-term commitments um, as part of of this Alan Gray Fellowship, where you know. Decades ahead, he he would have a an implied commitment to those individuals, and it was being funded by the profitability of the business, and the business might sort of fluctuate in terms of its profitability. And so he basically, you know, there was a very remote prospect of you know, decades ahead that if if the company went through a bad period, uh, the the foundation wouldn't be able to honour those long term commitments, and he he simply couldn't. Con- Contemplate, countenance that that mm. happening, and so so what he did was he he gave every last cent 
of of that some somewhere in the region of 150 million dollars um, to to create an endowment as as a financial backstop just to make sure that 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 the, that the foundation would never ever not be able to honor a commitment and and at the time in South Africa the, the, it was the largest single private philanthropic gift by an individual in the history of the country. Yeah. And and that's the gift that, that he was making just to ensure that he could honor commitments. And you know, it, it was extraordinary. When we started Starfish, we you know, we would celebrate every every pound that, that was was raised, you know, and we just really wanted to be be stewards, and it was an amazing excitement. You know, we didn't actually care about the amount; we just wanted to mm. be amazing stewards. That every last pound that we raised would go to the children. And yeah. uh, but there's something about the 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 the, the humor of God that that just um, you know recognizes. Um, and, and so after being so excited and 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 being faithful with just the small mm. uh, those those few pounds that we were raising only a few years later uh, there there I was responsible for stewarding the largest single private philanthropic gift in the history of of South Africa just really can mm. see the the hand love of God love it love it and oh so good and uh, what i also love about you guys is that um, you know you're you're both you and Susanna you're big picture um, but you're also incarnate kingdom values so let's let's bring it back to you know ground level and family and what that looks like because your your family is different to the norm tell us a bit about that yeah so um you, you must hear more about my my wife but um in in our discussions um uh, as, as she was very involved in in communities um, um for, for way longer than, than i had been and so we, we had a, a very um unusual deal breaker in our sort of discussions as we started to get more serious and, and started contemplating um spending our lives together and and that was that we we, we both um were absolutely committed to to adoption um, mm-hmm. you know, we just wanted to make sure that the under, uh, other understood. We just really, you know, with the work in Starfish and just understanding that you know God has adopted each one of us, uh, we were just sort of comp- and just knowing that there was such a, you know, a huge number of children that 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 would really benefit from from being in a in a wholesome Christian family. We we were totally committed to adoption, mm-hmm. um, and so that that was known. Um, but we had no, you know, we just kind of let that sleep for a while, and and we kind of entered into our early years of, of marriage, and we're very busy and so you know, kind of children were the last thing um, on our minds at, at that stage and then uh, amazingly I was, I was taken back to to where it all began uh, there was a, a Christian conference that was happening in KwaZulu-Natal it meant that I had time while I was up there and so I decided okay well let me use that that space and that time to go back to God's Golden Acre and, and to see how everyone's doing there and I went and had lunch with Heather um, and over lunch um, she just brought through this this beautiful little baby um she wasn't more than than three or four months old and and i i held her in my arms and and something shifted um in my heart and and you must remember that uh, having been involved with starfish for years i mean you're holding a, a young a young baby wasn't something new there were probably thousands uh, at least that that i'd kind of been engaging with over the years but but obviously god had anointed and appointed this particular yes. child and i was actually on the phone to um to Susanna and uh, uh, and said, you know, I, I I don't even remember saying it, but apparently I said to her, I'm, I'm holding our little girl, and then oh. she kind of wasn't quite sure what was going on, and yeah. all a bit surprising. Um, but but that yeah, there were just there was something that shifted, and 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 initially it was well, we just need to take responsibility for, for for this young girl somehow because it was a you know, tragic story that had led her to being looked after um, at God's Golden Acre, and 
and and so I was back now in Cape Town, and we were discussing and, and talking about you know how, what plans could we make for her, and and the more we started talking about, it, the more we just looked each other in the eye and said, well, 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 what about us? Yeah. Um, you know, this is this has always been part of our plan, mm-hmm. um, and so you know, I, I, I phoned one of my mentors in a bit of a panic and and, and said. Um, you know, it's a, a chap George from from an incredible ministry called Hands at Work in Africa, um, and and I said, you know, look, yeah, this is what's happened, and but it's not a really good time. You know, we're quite busy at work, and, and, and this is happening, and, and and that, and and um, and he listened to me quietly, and he said, well, um, actually, Anthony, it's not about you, it's about this girl. And, and are you willing to give her everything that she deserves? Uh, and, and are you willing to make that sacrifice? Um, and it was just sort of just a real reminder of what, what actually it was all about. Yeah. Um, and so, but, so now we were getting serious, but Susanna hadn't even met her yet. So it was a bit, um, bit awkward. Uh, and so uh, we said, okay, well, let's go up. Um, about a month after I had first met her, we, we went up for the weekend and it was all very well planned and considered and rational that we would, you know, Susanna would get to engage with her, we could talk about it and we could make it, you know, we could then sort of take a little bit of time um, to make a decision and, and, and we were actually going overseas on a business trip immediately afterwards and, and that that's how we were going to play it. Um, uh, but sure enough, as <laughs> the moment we arrived, the, the moment that um, uh, our daughter Caraba was put into Susanna's arms, we just knew this is our daughter and we are never, ever leaving her. There's no way we are, are leaving her, not for a moment. And so at the end of the weekend, I, I flew back, Susanna stayed and uh, kind of made panicked phone calls to my parents saying, well, what do you need for a baby? What, what, what do we need to get? Um, and uh, I've got good news for you. You've, you've become grandparents. <laughs> um, and, uh, not how they would have liked baby. And, uh, <laughs> and so about two days later, Susanna flew back and, and, uh, and that's our daughter. <laughs> Brilliant. And Anthony, we're running out of time, but it wasn't just your daughter, was it? It was also your son, Linda. Tell us very briefly about him. So, so we went back every year to, to God's Golden Acre and, and then we found out that actually um, that there, there, there might be a, a relative. In fact, we received a letter from a great aunt um, uh, that, that our, our soon-to-be son had written saying, I, I hear I have a sister. Um, uh, I don't know where she is. I, I hear she's gone to Cape Town. How do I find her? Uh, and essentially, they, uh, our, our son and daughter share the, the same maternal uh, mother, uh, biological mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so we, we then, you know, by, by this stage though, he was already 11 years old, but we made plans to meet him initially just to to complete the understanding of our daughter, but but again the same process happened as as soon as we met him uh, and and we could see the connection between him and our daughter, we, we realized that that God had much uh, bigger plans, and so um, uh, um, at the age of eleven um, he he joined our family. So so all mm-hmm. of our and and we have have a biological child so so all of our children have have, have oldest child syndrome but we we have fun <laughs> as a family despite that wow. <laughs> oh it's so good oh i mean I'm, I'm really annoyed that we haven't got more time because there's so much more we'd like to hear on that one but i'm going to give you just one one more question uh, and again it's going to have to take a brief answer and that is that you know you are where you are right now uh, where is all this heading what's your vision for the future yeah, so we now have the the Alan and Jill Gray philanthropies and and, and as a as a vehicle, but but essentially, I 
think there's this, um, you know, we, we know um, that, that, that Africa is on God's heart. Um, mm. And we know that it is, you know, in some senses, in some parts of the continent, it's, it's the, you know, the, the, the greatest challenge. Uh, but in that greatest challenge is the greatest opportunity. And, yeah. and there are many things that need to happen for, for us to realize the fullness of, of Africa's potential. But, but one of them is, is really kingdom businesses. In, in other words, these businesses that are inspired um, by what is possible in, in unleashing the creativity, the God-given creativity that God has invested in some people to make a difference for society, to transform mm. communities, to to really bring about an understanding of of what um, what, what what restoration we can we can bring uh, to the continent through those businesses. So good. Um, listen, if anyone wants to be in touch with you or is anything you want to promote, just go for it quickly. Yeah. Um, um, please um, come and and find me. Um, my my email is um, a far f a w r at Alan Jill Gray Philanthropies dot org. And if you get the email right, you deserve to make contact. Oh, great! Oh, Anthony, it's been such a treat. Um, the next time I suspect we'll see each other is actually for the longest time we'll ever have had together, which will be about ten days. And it's a chance for me to plug it. The two thousand basically each. Um, End of May, beginning of June, we do a cycling fundraiser around Burundi. For the last few years, we've done it in Rwanda because Burundi wasn't so safe. It's safe again now. Anthony has signed up, I think, for 2023, and it is an incredible experience. I say to people, I'm going to give you the best 10 days of the last five years. That's what I aim to do. We see our local partners. We get rock star treatment as as kids pour out of schools. The teachers can't keep them in as they see these uh, men in Lycra, middle-aged men in Lycra going past. It's such an extraordinary sight for them and uh, just great. It's it's a fabulous experience. So if any of you know cyclists or are cyclists and want to join us, that is each end of May, June, we do a week cycling. It's 50,000 feet elevation, so it's a good challenge. And, and Anthony's a bit faster than me. He's a bit bigger. He's a number number eight in rugby, so so I might be able to beat him at that as well. There's a challenge. The gauntlet has been laid down, Anthony. Get fit. And uh, look, time's run out. Listen, everybody, I hope you've enjoyed it. If you've Just enjoyed, you wait, Simon. <laughs> if you've enjoyed this podcast, guys, please give us a great rating on, on Spotify, iTunes. Uh, if you want to be in touch with me, it is, uh, well, simongilbert.com, any of the social media platforms. I want to thank Adam Thomas Steer for the editing and uh, Mike Sanderman for the mixing. Uh, in the meantime, have a great week. We'll see you next week. Toodaloo.